This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everybody. This is Intelligence Squared US, and I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator. And among the many issues that are dividing us today is how we all see the police. One set of American kids raised to think the policeman is your friend. And another, at some point in their childhood, given what is called the talk. That's the warning that cops can be dangerous to them, so be careful around them. George Floyd's death has split the gap over our perceptions of the police wider than ever. The larger ever protests calling for overhauling how police works and for defunding them. But against that, the counter-protest, Blue Lives Matter, arguing that police departments require public support in the challenging assignments that society gives to cops. You are about to hear our virtual debate, one that we recorded September 18th and premiered in front of a live audience that tuned in remotely. The topic, unresolved American policing. And we use that word unresolved quite purposefully because there is so much to dig into here, so many cross currents, so many sides really, that we decided actually to argue through a series of resolutions, one after the other. And to have five debaters, each one flying solo, taking a yes or no position on each of those resolutions. So let's meet those debaters now. First, let's welcome Paul Butler. Paul, you're an author and a scholar and a law professor. You were a progressive federal prosecutor. You are also an alumnus of our series. So, Paul Butler, welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Great to be here, Gene. I'm a recovering prosecutor now. (laughs) Okay, I think we'll hear more about what you mean by that. Uh, Our next debater I'd like you to meet is Jason Johnson. Jason, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You're a former police executive. You currently serve as president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Uh, I want to say to you also, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Next, Rafael Mangual. Rafael, you are a criminal justice scholar at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, You were also recently appointed to serve on the New York State Advisory Commission on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And Sue Rar. Sue, uh, from law enforcement, you served as sheriff of King County. That's in Washington state, and it encompasses Seattle uh, and the surrounding area. You also served on President Obama's Police Reform Commission. Thanks so much for being part of this debate today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I'd like to also introduce Vikrant Reddy. Vikrant, you are a senior fellow at the Koch Institute. You're an expert on criminal justice reform. Uh, it's what you have devoted many years of, st- of study to, and it's great to have you and your expertise with us. Vikrant, thanks for joining us. It's a delight to be here. Thank you. All right. It is time to cast your first vote. And while our live virtual audience has already voted on these motions, you can still join us as well. If you're listening to the debate on radio or podcast, you can join in by going to iq2us.org. Right on our website, we are still collecting votes. You'll vote yes or no on each of our resolutions. It's all right there on iq2us.org. And to remind you again of how this will be working, we're going to be going through a series of resolutions one at a time. For each resolution, the debaters will declare yes or no, and then each debater will have 90 seconds to tell you where he or she stands. And we're going to be working through the debaters in alphabetical order. Let's start our debate then. Let's move to our first resolution. And it is the three-word protest cry that's been heard around the nation, defund the police. Kicking off this first round for his 90-second opening statement on the resolution, Paul Butler, on the statement, we should defund the police. Do you say yes or no? Yes, we should reallocate the billions of dollars that tax is currently spent on policing to programs that are proven to keep communities safer and citizens healthier. Nine out of 10 calls the police get are for nonviolent encounters, often have people with guns and clubs and the power to arrest make things worse, not better. People call the police because of a problem in a relationship or a beef between neighbors or because of a mental health crisis. The guns, the pepper spray, the batons, the handcuffs, they don't solve the problem. 
There are a lot of myths about police, including that they solve crimes. The police don't solve the vast majority of crimes. People know that if you call 911 and say your iPhone is stolen, the cops aren't going to find your iPhone. What a lot of people don't realize is that's true for most crimes. 70%, 70% of robberies, 70% of rapes are not solved by the police. 40% of murders aren't solved. One consistent finding in social science is if we want to reduce crime, education equity, and establishing jobs is the best approach. So defund the police recognizes that shifting resources to community programs for violence prevention or mental health treatment and providing housing to homeless people is a better use of resources than the billions of dollars that are now spent on policing. Thank you, Paul Butler. Next, to argue yes or no on the resolution, we should defund the police, Jason Johnson. Jason, are you yes or no? I'm a no, and there are three principal reasons. Uh, one is that police are a critical component and an irreplaceable component in the public safety team to provide safety to the, the public at large. We know that when police are marginalized or unable to do their jobs to the full extent that crime tends to go up, uh, this year, for example, homicides nationwide are up almost 15%. Um, in selected jurisdictions, like in New York this year, uh, arrests are down 55% and homicides are up 45%. In Chicago in 2016, after their stop and frisk agreement with the ACLU, arrests went down 24%, homicides up 59%. In Baltimore, after the Freddie Gray riots, arrests down 28%, homicides up 55%. Clear connection between police activity and violent crime. Uh, reason number two is uh, reform, police reform, which is something people of goodwill on both sides of the issue agree is good. Uh, reform is expensive. It does cost money. It does not come for free. Uh, training police officers to a new standard, whether it's de-escalation or addressing mental health issues or anything else, if we're going to have police officers, we are going to have to change how they operate. Uh, that costs money. Number three is the communities that are most impacted by this proposed defunding don't support it. Gallup poll in June and July of this year uh, found that 81% of African Americans and 83% of Hispanic respondents to a poll uh, did not support reducing the amount of police presence in their communities. Thank you, Jason Johnson. Um, let's move on to our next debater on the question, defund the police. Rafael Mangual, you are up next. Do you say yes or no? And we should defund the police. I say absolutely not. And I say that for the most obvious reason that you can think of something that Jason just touched on, which is that doing so will significantly reduce the capacity of law enforcement to keep crime and disorder at bay in the United States of America. And that is a failure whose consequences will fall disproportionately on black and brown communities throughout the United States, which is something I think we ought to keep in mind because it is in those communities' names uh, that, that we hear that, that call to defund the police uh, exclaimed. Now, America has actually already gotten a taste of what less policing looks like, and it's not pretty. Consider, for example, that Sunday, May 31st, was the single most violent day in the city of Chicago since that city started keeping track in 1961, with 18 murders committed over the span of just 24 hours, nearly all of them on the city south and west sides. Now, why is this noteworthy? It's noteworthy because May 31st uh, was a day in which rather than proceeding with normal weekend deployments um, and patrol activity, Chicago police were overwhelmed by riots um, as a result of the George Floyd incident. Those riots erupted throughout the city, causing police to redeploy their resources away from problem neighborhoods. Um, and we have some support for this in the, uh, in the reporting, right? Um, uh, Father Michael Flagrant, noted police critic in the city of Chicago, told the Chicago Sun-Times that particularly that Sunday, he heard people saying all over, quote, hey, there's no police anywhere, police ain't doing nothing. Now, while that's an extreme example, uh, what that day in Chicago illustrated is a longstanding principle of criminology expressed by the routine activities theory of crime. Police are the most uh, obvious form of capable guardians that we have, and reducing their capacity to do their job will cause significant harm. Thank you very much, uh, Raphael. Our next debater uh, taking on this resolution will be uh, Sue Rar. Sue, um, as I said, you served as sheriff of King County. You have a law enforcement uh, perspective in general. We'd like to hear what you have to say on this resolution. Should we defund the police, yes or no? If defund means to eliminate the police, absolutely, unequivocally, no. If it means reducing or diverting their funding to social services, my answer is not yet. We must learn from the cautionary tale of the deinstitutionalization movement of the 1970s when funding was cut for mental health institutions. The theory was that we should get patients out of the inhumane institutions 
and they should be treated in their communities. The theory was well-intentioned but not well-implemented because the infrastructure was not in place to deliver services and the money didn't follow the need. To this day, we still don't have an adequate system in place to manage and provide treatment for addiction and mental illness. So it won't work to simply move the money from one system to the other. The reason police respond to calls involving homelessness, drug use, and mental illness is because we're the only ones that answer the phone 24 seven and show up. By the time people call police, the problem is out of control and often too dangerous for an unarmed social worker to, to respond. We are not like the fire service who intentionally took on the role of emergency medical services. We simply inherited the system failures of other institutions. We should not look at this as an either or. To quote one of my heroes, Tucson Police Chief Chris Magnus, you have to get the right problem into the right hands and then the hands have to work together. Thank you, Sue. And our final debater, Vigrant Reddy, on the resolution, defund the police. Are you yes or no? I'm a no, assuming that we're speaking English and assuming that defund means what any rational English speaker would think it would mean, which is to say that we take the money away and we uh, more or less make the institution extinct. That would be ludicrous. We have human nature. It's a reality. And if you have human nature, you're going to have incidents of violence. You're going to have to have law enforcement to handle those kinds of incidents. That can't go away, period. Now, having said that, I have a hunch that a lot of the people who say defund the police actually mean something different with that word. They probably mean something more like transform the police. They probably mean we should think seriously about whether or not law enforcement is the best way to handle things like mental illness or drug addiction or even traffic. Uh, It's not clear to me, just uh, for example, that an armed agent of the state, somebody carrying a gun, is the right person to walk up to you and alert you that you have a busted taillight. So... If that's what we mean by defund the police, if it's a transformation, well, I'm interested in that idea. I think that's worth a, a very serious conversation. But I do wish that the people uh, who are behind this kind of defund language would have a little bit more clarity when communicating with the American people, because I think they would actually get a lot more support. Okay, Vikran, thank you for your opening statement, and thank all five of you for your opening statement. We have one clearly stated yes three no's, and we have from Surar a sort of it depends what we mean by a kind of answer. And, and, I, and I see in the statement so far that there is a sort of seeking clarity, well, what do we mean by defund? And Paul, I'll, I'll go to you because you took this, the, the most unambiguous position of, yes, let's defund the police. We're looking at the state of American policing. Up next, we will hear from Paul Butler arguing for the resolution to defund the police. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Before the break, we heard opening statements from all five debaters in response to the resolution to defund the police. Next, we'll hear Paul Butler on what the term defund means to him. Defund the police is a slogan. It's a chant that people in the movement for Black lives have used to demonstrate our concern with police brutality, violence. As a policy, what defund the police means to me is reallocating the billions of dollars that go into policing into programs that actually are proven to make communities safer. So again, um, just to zero in a, a little bit, when you say defund the police by the billions, if, if there's a, a theoretical police department operating the way police departments operate today, let's just make the number easy, has $100 billion in funding, would you see most of that going away? You know, I look at what cities like Los Angeles are doing, where it took $100 million away from the LAPD to program for minority communities. San Francisco, Baltimore, PG County, all of those are reallocating large sums of money, doing things like taking police out of schools. All right. So so you're talking about if you're using the example of Los Angeles, 100, uh, 100 uh, billion is, is, is a significant number. I want to take that to Raphael. 
What is your rea reaction to that? My reaction to that is that um, we know just through simple economics what that means, and that means a reduced capacity for police to do what it is that they're doing. Right? When we talk about what's proven to work, um, what I'm hearing is, is a, a kind of a sense that we ought to be ignoring the extremely large body of evidence that shows that having uh, more police, better funded police, in communities does an incredible amount of good. You know, if we start to divert police resources away, we will in, inhibit their ability to be on foot patrols, to be proactive in their investigations, also to arrive at calls in a, in a timely manner, which we know is actually associated with higher rates of clearance. Yes, it's true that the police do not clear most of their cases, but if we were to uh, reduce their funding and, and if not eliminate it, what that is going to do is just drive that, that lack of clearance rate high. Jason, what your response to what you're hearing so far in the flow of the debate? Yeah, I agree with, uh, with what Raphael just uh, laid out with respect to the amount, uh, body of evidence that increased uh, police officers in any public space or really in any part of a city that is challenged with crimes has been shown to reduce crime. And then that's, that's been well documented. And I would just respond to Professor Butler clearly, as, as many do have concerns over the prospect of there being issues with police brutality, issues with police professionalism, issues with police conduct of all kinds. And to say that we're going to respond to that by cutting funding to police is a little bit like saying, if we have a, a problem with uh, medical malpractice, that we're going to cut funding to uh, institutions that train medical professionals. I mean, the funding is what law enforcement organizations depend on in order to reform themselves. I think the real disagreement is that that, that is called defunding. It's not defunding. It's actually spending more money um, on law enforcement coupled with these additional social services. Okay, Vikrant, I want to bring you into the conversation. And, and well, again, no, because I, I, I actually wanted to jump in and, and make a point please. about something, John, if you don't mind. We know that uh, more incarceration can, up to a point, produce more public safety, but that too produces diminishing returns. So at a certain point, instead of incarcerating so much on the back end, you would put more police on the streets on the front end. Apply the same kind of logic to police officers. Police officers more and more produce public safety up to a point. Beyond a certain point, it makes more sense to allocate funds to things like those sorts of things we've been talking about, drug addiction, mental health, homelessness, all of those things. I want to remind people that at the outset of this uh, round of the debate, you were sort of yes or no, depending on the situation. But jump in with that right, context. Right. Okay. I guess what I would say is it, I don't think that we're going to resolve this argument by looking at statistics. I think we need to look at the, the argument itself. Police are like the emergency room in a medical model. And I think social services are like preventative medicine. And we're talking about should we have one or the other? They have distinctly different functions. And if you shut down the emergency room, you're gonna eliminate a critical piece of medical care. You have to have both. We just have to find the right balance between the two. But the emergency room is providing bad medicine. It's not actually making communities safer. There's gotta be a better way. And you're right, Sue, the better way is prevention. Jason Johnson, as we, as, we, as we round out towards the end of this conversation, I want to give you a, a chance just to comment on what you've heard so far, and then I want to let Vikrant do that, and then we're going to wrap. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that uh, clearly defunding is, again, it, it's, it's throwing the baby out with bathwater. If there's a problem with policing in America, the answer to that is not, cut, is not cutting the funding. If you fix the problem, and, and oftentimes the fix is something that actually does cost money. All the efforts at prevention are, are, are good, but that doesn't mean that you, you get rid of the emergency room just because you're not satisfied with the quality of service. You fix it. And Vikrant, as you had to wait last to speak in this round, I want to give you the last word. Well, perhaps I'll just say this. It is true that there's been a, a slight uptick in violence ever since George Floyd's killing. It's also true that there was a slight uptick in violence after Michael Brown's killing in Ferguson. But setting those two brief periods aside, the broad trend for the last several years, really for the last several decades, has been a crime decline. It's important to note that because while there have been unfortunate problems with police recruiting in just the last few years, that doesn't mean that it's resulted in a lot more crime. All right, Vikran, thank you. And all debaters, thank you for your arguments on round one, we should defund the police. Now let's move on to a new resolution. Uh, the police are getting challenged in so many quarters. The one reliable support they have are from the unions that so many police belong to. But it's a relationship that has become controversial in, in itself as it's perceived over the last several months. So the resolution we're debating, and you are first up for this one, Jason Johnson, police unions do more harm 
then good. Jason, are you a yes or no on that one? I'm a no with uh, one relatively small caveat, uh, which I'll address. Uh, you know, police unions do three principal things. First off, they're, they're social. Uh, they allow police officers to decompress together in a social environment, get their families together. And certainly, I don't think anyone uh, argues against that. They also are collective bargaining units. So they do negotiate on behalf of the of members of, of police departments, police officers. They negotiate with the municipalities that employ police officers and form co work contracts, collective bargaining agreements. And third, uh, they are they push for legislation. They push for or against legislation. So um, in, in their role as uh, advocates for and collective bargaining for their membership, uh, the vast majority of these, these unions uh, simply are, are negotiating for better wages salaries, working conditions. Uh, they're negotiating with municipalities. So any collective bargaining agreements they have are struck with the municipalities. They're not things that are just drafted by the union and the municipalities are stuck with them. They are bargains in every sense of the word. Um, and so they shouldn't be scapegoated as, as contributing to problems in law enforcement. Uh, with respect to their legislative work, uh, there are you know 16 states in the United States that have some form of law enforcement officers bill of rights that in many cases were championed by these unions. But again, this is legislative action that's taken by legislative bodies and states. They do so voluntarily. Uh, there is a political check on them. And then it's not the union's fault if people now feel that those uh, uh, bills of rights that protect uh, procedural rights only for law enforcement officers are, are all of a sudden unpopular. Uh, the caveat I'll give you where I think there is a problem is when collective bargaining agreements overly involve themselves in the discipline process and tie the hands of law enforcement executives and don't allow them to take appropriate disciplinary action. That is the one caveat where I think we need to do better with unions. Thank you, Jason. Our next speaker on this one is Rafael Manguel. Rafael, on the resolution, police unions do more harm than good. Are you a yes or a no? I'm a no simply because I just don't think there's enough evidence to say that. Now, you should understand that as, as someone who's generally skeptical of public sector unions, I'm somewhat more ambivalent about this question than some of the others before us. But I think what we have to ask ourselves with respect to this particular uh, resolution, as well as the others uh, for that matter, is why this issue has come to the fore. And I think that the answer to that is that there is a an argument that is that is risen to the fore, and that argument goes as follows, which is, as Jason uh, kind of noted, police unions have been instrumental in bargaining for provisions in collective bargaining agreements that functionally raise the transaction costs of disciplining police officers when they misbehave uh, beyond the point of reasonableness. And I think that this is certainly a problem, but it's also important for us to understand why unions so closely guard the employment security of their members. And I think the reason is that as a policing career develops, uh, you develop a, a set of skills as a cop that isn't necessarily obviously translatable into another line of work. Um, and, and police officer pay is not especially high. Much of it is backlogged through pension programs. Uh, and so I think one of the things that we ought to be thinking about is how we can encourage union leaders to ease up on some of these specific provisions, such as by raising officer pay at the front end, um, even if that means maybe reducing uh, uh, pension payments, um, because if you spend eight years, you know, uh, as a as a cop and you get fired, um, you know, th that can be extremely, extremely detrimental. And so, you know, I, I also think that, you know, there is some good that they do. Uh, Jason uh, sort of hinted at some of the legislation to the extent that that gives police officers the confidence they need to proactively do their jobs well. I think that is a good. Um, I'm open to being convinced otherwise uh, that the balance uh, comes out in the other way. But for now, I, I say no. Thank you, Raphael. Uh, next up is Sue Rar. Sue, resolution again, police unions do more harm than good. Are you yes or no? I'm a no, but uh, unions, <laughs> unions serve an important function for employees, especially employees in a dangerous working environment where funding is limited. There needs to be strong advocacy for safety and reasonable pay. In my experience, the unions get, get blamed for what elected officials do. The elected officials bow too easily, in my opinion, to unions' political pressure. The union is playing an advocacy role. The elected officials need to play their stewardship role and strike a balance between the interests of the community and the interests of the members and their employment rights. Because tough on crime has been such a popular political position, unions have been able to use it to their advantage. They can threaten politicians who don't who don't support union-backed legislation by labeling them soft on crime. And that threat has been very effective for the last 50 years. It still works well in the most egregious misbehavior, even in the very blue state of Washington. Unions do what unions are supposed to do. Elected officials need to begin challenging that. All the rights, processes, and procedures union use, unions use 
to protect officers are encoded in local laws and procedures, just, just as Jason has said. Um, I think that in Washington state, we have binding arbitration that allows a civilian arbitrator to order a police chief to put an officer that was fired for egregious misconduct right back on the street. When I was sheriff, this infuriated me, but it was and it still is the law in the state of Washington. The laws need to be changed and the politicians need to stand up to the pressure. Thank you, Sue. Our fourth opening statement on the motion, police unions do more harm than good. Vikrant, ready? Vikrant, the screen is yours. Well, much like Ralph, I'm generally a skeptic of public sector unions, but I would extend that to police unions also. I'm a yes on this question. You know, unions, they argue for reduced accountability for their members. That happens whether it's a police union or it's not a police union. That's what they're pushing for. That's why you see things like in Austin, Texas, where I come from, a really curious rule that says that after an allegation of police misconduct, the officer is allowed to review his video before speaking to an investigator. That's a really bizarre rule. It means that you get to come up with some kind of a story that's consistent with what everybody's going to see on the screen before you even speak with the investigator. Rules like that get bargained for by the unions. What's happening here is that the unions are collective bargaining and they're bargaining for reductions in accountability. As a closing note, I'll say, I gave a kind of middle of the road answer on whether or not we should defund the police. I can give a firm answer that we should defund the police unions. All right. Thanks very much. Combining two of our resolutions. All right. We are three no's and one yes on whether police unions do more harm than good. That leaves it now to Paul Butler. Paul Butler, on the resolution, are you a yes or a no? I'm neither. I'm a all hell yes. <laughs> a pack okay. of rabid animals. <laughs> That's how the president of the Philly police union described activists in Black Lives Matter. They were protesting a cop who had shot black suspects in the back on two separate occasions. When that cop finally got suspended for his brutality, the police union had a fundraiser for him. Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke got fired for shooting 16 bullets into the back of Laquan McDonald. The Chicago Fraternal Order of Police then hired him to be a janitor at their headquarters. That cop was subsequently convicted of murder. Tamir Rice, 12-year-old kid, got killed by a Cleveland police officer. The president of the Miami Fraternal Order of Police tweeted, act like a thug, you'll be treated like a thug. Police reform is about transparency and accountability. Police unions fight those every step of the way. So I agree with my debaters who say that there's nothing wrong with any worker including a police officer organizing for better working conditions or more pay, police unions should not be allowed to bargain for things like the use of deadly force or hiding the disciplinary records of bad apple cops. Thank you, Paul Butler. All right, so let's discuss what we've just heard. And I want to go to you, Jason Johnson, not just because you spoke first, but because you did make a distinction, the distinction that Paul Butler just mentioned between um, police having um, basically labor protection in terms of salary, working conditions, things like that. You said, well, the one place I don't think the unions uh, are, are always uh, conducting their business in the correct way is when it comes to their, enforce, their, their interaction, their involvement with disciplinary measures. To have you respond to the weight that your opponents are giving to that part of the, sto of the story? Yeah, that's uh, that's what I that's what I'm saying is that I think that is the area in which um, the work of police unions can be more harmful than helpful is when there's an overemphasis on collective bargaining for disciplinary due process. You know, police unions are part of the part of the process. So to to shut them out of that seems completely undemocratic. To say that they can't lobby legislators to pass laws uh, that are helpful to them and their membership. It's the same thing that the ACLU does, that the, any organization does, is that they use the democratic process to, to improve things for their members. And that's all that unions do. Now, over time, jurisdictions have for, sometimes for the purposes that are good for the employing municipality, have made concessions with the unions that allow um, collective bargaining agreements to be filled with uh, things that are not monetary in nature, have nothing to do with uh, salary and benefits, have everything to do with restraining uh, the ability of executives to discipline police officers. But 
in many cases, those have been put in there at the behest of the municipalities because they don't want to pay raises or other things, make improvements to benefits. They would rather um, include these non-monetary issues that have historically been less important to the municipalities. And now we get to a point in history where there's a lot of scrutiny on these things and all of the municipal leaders are sort of walking away from it and blaming it on the unions when really the unions just came to the table to negotiate and they got the best deal they could for their members. So I think I think there's something just uh, that kind of stinks about putting this at the feet of the unions when in most cases, this, these were things that were pushed uh, by the municipal leaders. Raphael, your thought on that? Yeah, no, I think, look, I think we can say that it is almost an unalloyed uh, harm, negative, that uh, you know these unions often are successful in being able to um, negotiate for these provisions that, that essentially prevent executives from disciplining uh, rogue officers. And I think that's a real problem. But however, the, one of the reasons I don't say that we can say for sure that police unions do more harm than good is that the universe in which uh, those provisions come to bear is actually really small, right? Again, the reason we're talking about this is because we had these viral incidents of alleged police misconduct. Um, but the reality is, is that police use of force is extremely rare in the United States across jurisdictions, whether those jurisdictions have police departments that are unionized or not. Um, more than 99% of arrests affected uh, in the United States go off without a hitch, which is to say that they go off without any significant amount of force being used by police at all. And even in the cases in which police do use force, 98% of the time, that force does not result in any measurable injury uh, to the suspect. And so, you know, I, I think it's natural for us to worry about these really problematic events, but we do have to sort of, I think, zoom out and understand how rare they really are. And when we do that, I think what we see is that while this is a certainly negative aspect of police unionization, um, it, 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 it's brought to bear in a relatively uh, you know, small number of, of cases, given the overall volume of police activity in the United States, so, which produces so, so many goods. So to take that point, to, to Vikran, what, what you're arguing is that the numbers, the incidence of police using force is really, really small. Vikran, do you, does that argument soften in any way your concern about police having this power? No, not in the slightest. First of all, I agree with Raphael that the uses of force and, uh, and abuses of force are small relative to everything that police officers do. But nevertheless, when they happen, there should be discipline whenever they're bad. The police unions are arguing for ways to reduce that kind of accountability. Vikrant Reddy responding to the resolution, Police Unions Do More Harm Than Good. More debate in just a moment. From Intelligence Squared U.S., I'm John Donvan, and we are in the midst of our second resolution asking the question, do police unions do more harm than good? So, I, so, so you were in the position that you described where you, you wanted to exert discipline against uh, uh, officers under your command, and the union rules wouldn't let you do that, and you were frustrated. But you say, let's not blame that on the union, let's blame that on the legislature. But as um, Jason mentioned at the beginning, unions work on legislation. Would you would you want to bar unions from having that right to push legislation? No, abs- absolutely not. What I'm saying is our elected officials need to grow a backbone. Unions have a necessary and important role. We have seen municipalities all over the country try to save money and in wage increases by conceding to all kinds of, of procedural things. We need our elected officials to take responsibility for the stewardship of, of the welfare of the community and not bow to the union's pressure. Jason, why don't we go to you? Yeah, uh, back two, to you two things. First off, the, the police unions don't do anything with respect to collective bargaining agreements or supporting or opposing legislation that implicates in any way the criminal responsibility or criminal system that applies to police officers when they've used force. The other thing I would point out, partially in response to something Vikrant said um, about you know, officers have to be held accountable if they use excessive force. So I think we all agree with that. The problem is, is that because of the nature of the work that police officers do, their, their work is increasingly in the public space. Uh, they're on videotape, they're viral videos of police um, actions, and people are paying a lot more attention to it. The work of unions, in part, is to protect law enforcement officers from the political heat that comes with being involved in a controversial incident and, and making sure that the employer is actually looking at the facts and treating that employee with due process. At the end of the day, if the cop has done something wrong and it can be proven, there can be accountability. J- Jason, are you saying that we should, that we should, not, we should not be trusting what the videos seem to say? No, you should, no, you shouldn't. The video is one piece of evidence. You can't just look at a video and decide you know what happened. 
think Paul wants to say something, and I'll yeah, let well, Paul speak. Well, there was a statement about videotapes, and maybe we shouldn't believe them. I think that we can believe our own eyes when we see police in Minneapolis uh, put their knee on George Floyd's neck and strangle him to death. I think that one of the reasons that we're having this national reckoning on race is that all over the country, Americans have seen with their own eyes the violence and brutality of policing in communities of color. Fikrant, last word from you. I really disagree with Jason on this uh, question about whether or not police unions can help their members evade accountability. Again, I, I think about the police contract in Austin. So after 180 days, there's a 180-day rule. If a, a complaint is made against police officers after 180 days, it can't be investigated. It's got to happen within this time period. Beyond that, you're out of luck. You can negotiate for these rules on the front end to help the officer evade accountability on the back end later on. Thank you, Vikrant. And that concludes our discussion of this question of whether police unions have done more harm than good. All right, let's move on to uh, our next resolution. Uh, and that resolution, you know, really touches on, on one of the things that we have all seen over the last several months in the cell phone videos. And it's the, the sort of equipment that we see police uh, using in confrontations with large groups of people, uh, also some of the tactics that they're using in those confrontations. What we've seen for, for many civilians, it's, it's a little bit of a revelation to us, and it's also the joint jumping off point for our next resolution, which Surar will argue first, and that resolution is the police have become too militarized. Sue, are you a yes or a no on that? In the arena of equipment, I say no, but in the arena of a militarized culture, I say yes. Police are, police are working in one of the most heavily armed countries in the world, and they have to be able to protect themselves and others. Equipment like armored personnel carriers and helicopters are critically important to rescue missions and to apprehend dangerous criminals and to rescue people. When I was sheriff in the metropolitan area, we relied on our helicopter to rescue hikers and to track down suspects. We absolutely needed an armor, armored personnel carrier to manage dangerous situations involving hostages and armed people who were barricaded. We couldn't get to them to begin negotiating unless we had that armored personnel carrier. I acquired dozens and dozens of military rifles, not because they were more lethal. They were less lethal than what was available in the local gun store, but what they were was free. And I couldn't afford to buy enough rifles for my officers. Police officers know in many situations, rifles are much safer to use than handguns. The problem with military equipment is not the equipment itself, it's the way it's used and the way it's displayed, which gets us to the culture. Creating the image of the police engaged in war began in the 70s with the war on drugs, the war on crime. It exploded in after 9-11 with the war on terror. It's a political movement that morphed into popular culture, and, and that image was warmly embraced by the profession. We need to work intentionally to reclaim the culture of service and protection. The problem isn't the equipment. The problem is the culture. Thank you, Sue Rar. Um, the resolution, again, the police have become too militarized. Vikrant Reddy, are you a yes or a no on that? I mean, yes. I often think on this issue about a, a passage in the Odyssey, actually. In this moment, in the Odyssey, Odysseus is about to host a banquet, and he tells his son at the banquet, you've got to confiscate all the men's swords. His son asks him why he says, and I remember this line, because the sword itself incites to violence. The very act of holding the blade, the very act of holding a weapon, makes a person want to use it. You give all these police officers, very frequently young men, by the way, all these really interesting, fascinating weapons that were used in places like the Battle of Fallujah, they are looking for opportunities to use those weapons. They have uh, adopted a kind of warrior mindset whenever they're carrying these weapons around. Also note, by the way, that it's, it goes beyond being a matter of culture. It is a matter of the equipment itself. If you've got an extremely heavy gun, one that you need both hands to hold, uh, you can't be in a position where you're holding a gun with one hand, but trying to de-escalate or wave off the situation with the other. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which the policing culture and the policing equipment just exhibit excessive militarization. We could talk about the uniforms. I don't understand why police officers are frequently wearing camouflage. There are no jungles in downtown Houston or Omaha or Minneapolis. You see that sort of thing. I think we ought to be looking at uh, the ways in which we use SWAT, whether or not that's being used 
too frequently. I think we should look at use of force uh, training and tactics. If the person you're going after pulls out a gun, then sure, the police officer probably needs to pull out a gun. But if the person you're going after pulls out a baseball bat, do you need to pull out a gun? What is the police department's policy on that? Police department should be reviewing all of these things because the militarization that's overtaken policing is a problem. Thank you. We have the police have become too militarized. We have a yes and a no so far. Now into Paul Butler. On the police have become too militarized. Paul Butler, are you a yes or a no? I'm a yes with a shout out to whoever made this question last because it perfectly combines all of the other issues that we've debated about why the police uh, need be defunded in the sense of having some of their money reallocated to social services, the problem of police unions. People know about this 1033 program where police departments got surplus military equipment from the Pentagon. And people think that President Obama stopped the program. He didn't. All he did was say that certain weapons like tanks and grenade launchers and bayonets were off limit. Fast forward to the Trump presidency, the Fraternal Order of Police National Convention, the Attorney General of the United States goes in like a conquering warrior and says, guess what? We've reinstated the program. You get your grenades, you get your tanks, and you get your bayonets back. Uh, The reports say that the audience of police officers stood up and cheered. What the hell do police need with a bayonet? Only thing that I know for sure is that the people who are most likely to be victims are black and brown people. The problem is that police officers think of themselves as warriors. It's us against them, and them is we the people. We the people where the police are supposed to serve and protect. So if you think about somebody who applies for a job to be a warrior, as opposed to somebody who applies to be a guardian, it's a whole different skill set. It's a whole different reason why you want to do the work. Uh, Again, the resolution, the police have become too militarized. Our next speaker, Jason Johnson, you get your 90 seconds now. Uh, No, Um, but my thoughts thoughts overlap to a great extent with with those of Sue Rara. I do agree that there are certain cultural issues in policing that uh, have become, you know, I don't know if militarized is the right term, but they don't square with what is uh, the most effective approach to serve the community and in, in all the different ways that law enforcement organizations and officers are, are asked to serve the community. With respect to some of my um, my colleagues here on the panel that, are, that voted yes for this motion, who I have incredible respect for, I think in some ways it's a little bit naive. Uh, you know, we're, we're in a country that has about 15 million military-style assault weapons out there in, in general circulation. Uh, last year in 2019, there were 417 mass shootings. We still face the, the risk of, of terrorism that local law enforcement is a first responder to. Um, and our officers need to be prepared to address uh, just even a routine a hostage barricade situation. There is no one else that's going to respond to that. They need to be properly trained, properly equipped. But I think to just say that uh, it's militarized based on anecdotal uh, information, observations that I would, I would say in, in many ways are naive is, uh, is not the right approach here. I think we need to look at each individual. If we're talking about militarization, we need to look at each individual aspect of that and determine whether it makes sense or it doesn't. I agree with Sue that it's mostly cultural. Thank you, Jason Johnson. And our last debater on this resolution, Rafael Mangual. Uh, the police have become too militarized. Are you a yes or a no? I am a no, and I'm a no as to both uh, equipment and culture, simply for the reason that uh, there's just no evidence in, in the available data. And, you know, again, I'm going to rely on empirics here. You know, we heard that this is a trend that started culturally in the 1970s. But if we look at major city uses of force, what we don't see is any correlation with the use of force and that kind of attitudinal shift. In 1971, the NYPD uh, shot and injured 221 people. By 2016, that number was down to 72. We heard about SWAT. Well, let's look at SWAT involvement in cities across the United States. Within the NYPD, ESU officers, emergency service units, which is our, our SWAT team here, uh, and in 2019 did not record a single shooting. If we consider a, a comparison, an international comparison between us and the UK, we do not see uh, varying rates of, of, of uh, civilian complaints with respect to police use of force. The rate here in the United States is 7.5 force complaints for 100,000 officers. In the UK, where most officers are not even armed, it is 
0.2 per 100,000 officers. As to the 1033 program, there have been multiple empirical analyses of these. What they all found was that uh, the 1033 program is associated with declines in officer injury, declines in officer uses of deadly force, declines in suspect injury, particularly because of the mechanism of deterrence. And there actually is some evidence uh, for this, as Rick Rott noted, from the uniform literature, which actually shows that the police are communicating outwardly uh, a sense of authority, that people respond to that by uh, disengaging violently or being less likely to engage violently. All right, let's move on to let's move on to some general discussion. But Raphael, while we do that, I, I just want to ask you: Can I summarize the point you just came with numbers on on yes. for your argument? Can I summarize that by your saying that in general, compared to say twenty, thirty years ago, that there is less violence in the interactions between police and the population than there was twenty or thirty years ago? I, I want to take it to Vikrant. Do, do you challenge that assertion? And if you don't, did, did Raphael just blow up the whole notion that the militarization issue is one of concern at all? That militarization is, as Jason had said, the wrong word here. Well, let me begin by saying that I, I don't challenge the assertion that there is uh, you know, less police violence uh, than there had been in periods in the past that Raphael was talking about. I, I think that is true. And, and I think, I believe Raphael has written about this. To some extent, what we are seeing is concerns that are erupting because of things like viral videos. Now, having said that, I don't think that that blows up the argument. These, uh, these incidents of violence do happen, and uh, they still happen more frequently than I would like to see them happening. They should be reduced. It's also true that uh, we do have these viral videos, and like it or not, uh, they're out there, and they really, really damage police-community relationships. Police officers should be the very first ones saying, we want to do everything we can to ensure that we have good relationships with the members of the community, that they don't view us as warriors, that they do view us as guardians, they view us as protectors and helpers. And these really terrifying weapons don't help that process. I should note, by the way, that I I take Jason's point that um, we live in a uniquely militarized society civilian militarization. It's not Japan, it's not Belgium. We're never going to have uh, that kind of reduction in police militarization. But you can still have reasonable limits on these things. I read stories about uh, the city of Keene, New Hampshire, population 24,000, having an armored tank to guard its pumpkin festival. Those kinds of things happen. Those are real. That's a real story. And, you know, you might say in response, well, you know, there is a terrorism concern there. I think the way that you handle terrorism is that you're a realist about the fact that, yes, some police departments are going to need very sophisticated weapons. Yes, New York and L.A. and Chicago, these places can serve as nodes and you can very rapidly deliver these weapons to places that need them if they happen to be needed in a small uh, suburban or rural area. But the idea that you would give those weapons to 12,000 or 18,000 different police departments, I just don't see that as rational. Let me bring in let me bring in Surar. I just want to, I just want to clarify something. <clears throat> we don't police officers we're not saying they have to be either warriors or guardians. They have to combine both. They have to see themselves serving the role of a guardian, but they must also have warrior skills, warrior courage and warrior equipment. The problem we have with the appearance of overmilitarized police is a failure of leadership. And that are I'm talking about the people who make decisions about when that equipment will be pulled out. It is patently ridiculous to be a, to bring a tank to a pumpkin festival. Some of the things we saw in Ferguson that inflamed the country were an inappropriate display of that military equipment. You need to have strong leadership that has the courage to tell officers what kind of behavior is okay and not, and where, where the equipment should be used. But I think it would be a terrible disservice to our communities to say you have to pick one or the other. So, so you, you, you spoke in your opening on this particular motion about you have concerns about a culture, but yes, yes. You, you say it's, it, but you think the equipment is necessary. But we heard yes, Vikrant yes. explicitly say, and Paul Butler, you know, more implicitly said, the equipment kind of affects the culture. But I want to ask you, do you think that's a real dynamic? Do you think that, that the weapons sort of attract a kind of certain either individual or uh, elicit a certain kind of behavior? So driving fast with lights and siren and having guns, yeah, that that is going to attract people that are attracted to to excitement and adventure. 
we have to look at how we recruit police officers, but we can't, we can't discard important equipment because we don't have strong enough leadership to manage the culture of their agency. We need to pay more attention to that. As we just hit time, I want to say that I thank you and Intelligence Squared thank thanks you thanks. as well. All right. Our live virtual audience voted, and now I'm about to announce those results. On the first motion, we should defund the police. Before the debate, 38% voted yes, 62% voted no. After the debate, 40% voted yes, 60% voted no. So the for side pulled over two percentage points. The against side lost two percentage points. That makes the for side the winning argument here. And remember, it's the side that sways the most minds that is declared our winner here at Intelligence Squared. Second motion now. Police unions do more harm than good. Before the debate, 70% voted yes, 30% voted no. After the debate, 74% voted yes and 26% did no. The four side, again winning the day, pulling over four percentage points. And on the final motion, the police have become too militarized. Before the debate, 70% voted yes, 30% voted no. After the debate, 69% voted yes, 31% voted no. In this case, the against side picked up one percentage point and is our winner there. Those are the results from our virtual audience, but the voting continues online. If you go to iq2us.org, or if you click the link in our show notes, if you're listening on podcast, you can cast your vote right now. I want to thank you all for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. Our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is Chief of Staff. Shale Mara is Director of Editorial. Connor Kerfman is our Creative and Marketing Strategist. Jennifer Zelmer is Senior Researcher. Crystal Hawes and Damon Whittemore are our radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our Chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.